This is where the big social, political and religious dilemmas of our day are debated. The Interrogator from the Fifth Column. Hello, I'm Emma Barnett, The Interrogator. And this month, I'm tackling global warming, one of those subjects guaranteed to raise the temperature. The way we live, is it causing the planet to overheat? If you say yes, you'll predict catastrophes, more floods, soaring temperatures. Climate sceptics are fiddling while Rome or the Earth burns. If you say no, you'll predict positive as well as negative consequences. And anyway, global temperatures have always gone up and down. And why are we told that the Arctic is shrinking, but not that the Antarctic is expanding? We have just had yet another climate summit, this one in Durban. It looked to be hitting the usual problems, India refusing to approve anything that might put a break on its economy, despite, we're told, its carbon emissions growing at 9% a year, and China and the US not playing ball either. But right at the end, all three agreed to negotiate legally binding restrictions, though they don't seem to be in any hurry, it has to be said. Here with me are George Monbiot, a writer known for his environmental and political activism, a Guardian columnist and author of several books including Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning, and Claire Fox, director and founder of the British think tank, The Institute of Ideas, and very much committed to free speech in all contexts. They do not see eye to eye on this issue. George, I come to you first. The Durban Summit which we've just had. You're happy with the outcome, I assume, but not with delaying real change until 2020. Well, it's the best, I think, that could have been achieved given the incredible disagreements and constraints there were. Isn't this another meaningless promise made up of fine words destined to collapse long before the deadline? Well, that may well happen, but you could say the same about any international treaty. Uh, And you could argue that there's no point at all in treaty-making because... People will renege on it, it will collapse and the rest of it. It's the best hope we have. You have no doubts about global warming and that it's man-made and that its threat is a very real one. But why are you so selective in your choice of evidence? Because for starters, why do you not tell us about the greening of the Sahel, the shrinking of the Sahara or the spread of the Antarctic? Well, are these supposed to suggest that man-made global warming isn't happening? What you look at is the totality of the evidence and the evidence is overwhelming. Um, Those don't contradict man-made global warming at all. They're just um, uh, just results of, of it or of different weather systems taking place in different parts of the world. Um, this is why it's so important not to cherry-pick. It's why it's so important to look right across the totality of evidence rather than saying, I like this bit and not that bit. I can see that point, but this side of the argument hasn't had a great record on forecasts because, for one example, in 2005, the United Nations forecast 50 million climate refugees by 2010. So where are they now? Yes, I, I'm not sure that it's completely accurate to say that they forecast that. They, 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 uh, it was a branch which had nothing to do with predicting climate change, had picked that up from, I think, Le Monde Diplomatique, their migrations map. So it wasn't a UN prediction, and it had nothing at all to do with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was evidently an incorrect prediction, um, but you know, you're going to have some of those. But we don't rely on predictions when we're talking about climate change. We have the current observable evidence. Some people do feel that they are being fed wrong information that makes it seem bigger than it already is. Right. So if someone in a scientific field, physics, biology, chemistry, whatever it might be, once gets something wrong, 
that invalidates the whole field, does it? I'm not saying it invalidates it. I'm just saying something like a prediction of 50 million climate refugees. It, it really paints a very vivid picture. And when that doesn't manifest itself, I'm just saying I think you can start to see why people would start to question other areas. We should question everything. You know, we should be sceptical about everything. That's what science does. That's what certainly what science should do, is to say we take nothing for granted. We take nothing on trust. We, we just go with the evidence. We go with the empirical evidence, what we are able to demonstrate. And what we see with climate change is that even if Le Monde Diplomatique, which actually isn't anything to do with the scientific community, gets a prediction about climate refugees wrong, that does not mean that the overwhelming evidence for man-made climate change is not there. Haven't global temperatures always fluctuated, though? I mean, a thousand years ago, this country basked in a Mediterranean climate. Well, it wasn't a Mediterranean climate. It was a fairly similar climate to today's, in fact. Um, and it was one part of the world which had that climate fluctuation. And yes, absolutely, climate has always fluctuated. We've had ice ages, we've had ice retreats, and you can demonstrate exactly what the mechanisms are for those fluctuations, whether it's the Milankovitch cycle, whether it's sunspots, all, all sorts of different mechanisms. But, but none of those are operative at the moment because we're at the wrong stage for all those cycles to explain why we're seeing this remarkably fast spike of warming taking place at the moment. And yet it fits very clearly indeed with increased carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions produced by humankind. So do you believe that those scientists calling themselves climate change sceptics, not deniers, but sceptics, must be charlatans or cranks? Oh, no, no, no. I think that there are a few who do believe in, in what they're saying. I, I, I think that people can convince themselves of all sorts of things. I mean, this we see in every single field. But there was a survey conducted a couple of years ago of actively publishing climate scientists, and it found that 97% of those believed that man-made global warming was taking place. Now, that is a sort of consensus which is very rare in science. Yet these scientists w would say that there's never been so much as a debate about global warming. Since the phenomenon first exploded on the world in 1988, it, it, to its promoters, there's never been so much as an argument about it. And human-induced climate change is a reality, full stop. There is a, a very lively debate taking place on the media. We're about to have just such a thing in, in front of your very ears, ladies and gentlemen. But it doesn't reflect a similar debate taking place within the scientific community. I mean, it's just like people debate whether MMR causes autism, for instance. Um, and you can have a public debate about it, but it doesn't reflect a debate which is taking place in the scientific community, just as you might have a public debate about whether there's any link between smoking and lung cancer. Fine, you know, have those debates, but don't imagine you're going to change the science and change the evidence base by noisy discussions in studios between people who aren't scientists. So finally, I put this to you. You represent what is in danger of becoming a post-God religion. Well, uh, where's this religion? A, a religion um, is, is something that you follow if, you're, if your beliefs are unamenable to refutation. But our beliefs about climate change are entirely susceptible to the evidence. They emerge from the scientific evidence. The scientists say, overwhelmingly, as I say, you know, 97% of actively publishing scientists, tens and tens of thousands of peer-reviewed papers that man-made climate change is happening and it is a big deal. 
So we respond to that and say, right, this is what the evidence says, we've got to act on it. Where, where's the religion in there? Where's the faith? So, you, you explain that to me. So you would argue it's a matter of fact, not faith? Well, of course it is. What amazes me about this debate is that people who are completely unamenable to evidence, completely unamenable to refutation, will dismiss the tens of thousands of papers, will dismiss the 97% of climate science, scientists, will just put their hands over their ears and shout, no, 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 then turn round and say, you people are acting on the basis of faith. Well, that's projection if I've ever heard it. Thank you, George Monbiot. I move now to Claire Fox. What were your thoughts as the climate summit came to an end? I suppose I felt that this was an indication of the way that, in many ways, climate change has become far beyond anything that's a technical issue or a scientific issue. I mean, it's almost as though if you looked at the kind of agendas at that summit, you'll find everybody talking about poverty, um, famine, global inequality, capitalism and everything. Everything these days tends to be uh, all-encompassingly wrapped up in the climate change story. So everybody kind of wanted to say something about different things and climate change became the, the, the vehicle through which you could do it. And that's one of the things that makes me realise it's no longer just a scientific issue. But isn't that just being a sceptic for the sake of it? Because all the evidence points to global warming, higher temperatures than are sustainable, and man as the careless cause of them. Are you not fiddling while the earth burns, Claire? It's quite interesting that you use the term careless man, you know, because I think that's one of the the ideological, um, philosophical themes of the climate change debate, this idea that mankind has somehow uh, recklessly ruined things. I do think that, of course, um, mankind's intervention into the world will change things and it's had an impact on the climate. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think that should lead us to think that man should now restrain himself, that every bad thing that's happened... We don't tell the story of how fantastically exciting it is that we have done so many wonderful things over the modern period. We rather see it so negatively. Dr James Hansen, who first raised the alarm over global warming, says that a misconception in Durban was that a worldwide increase in the temperature of two degrees Celsius is safe. It is not, he says. Disasters await us if we think it is. That, in the context of a report from the Met Office, which forecasts average temperatures in southern Britain to rise by three degrees by the end of the century. What I'm trying to say to you is I don't see this issue as largely a technical argument about how you deal with climate. You see, say, for example, we're often told that the poor will suffer worse. Say, for example, rising sea levels or flooding. Now, it seems to me that the question then is, if you look at India, for example, there's always been a problem of flooding in India. How do you deal with that? Is the problem that the poor parts of the world can't deal with flooding? I would say the issue is poverty, Right, So it's a question of priorities, what you think is the most important issue. So rather than saying what we have to do is to reduce CO2 emissions, my argument is what can we do to improve the wealth of developing nations so that when they have natural disasters, they can deal with them differentially. Let me quote to you a figure which I suggest you can't ignore. It's a scientific fact that carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels have increased by 50% in the last 20 years. At the very least, that's not conducive to healthy living, is it? Well, let's imagine why that is. I think that's fantastic that they've increased, because you know what it means? It means that places like China and India have developed. That's why they've increased. I mean, you say that's not conducive to healthy living. It's a very conducive to healthy living if it means that you've now got a, a, a warm, 
built house rather than living in a mud hut or living on the streets in India, it means a huge amount to those people who have now got a modern lifestyle. And so when you talk about... Because we, this is the thing, we almost kind of give burning CO2 emissions a kind of, you know, devil-like character, right? Let's remember what that means. That means energy. That means electricity. That means warmth. That means refrigeration for food. That's what real use, burning CO2 emissions, not some abstract concept. It means development, modernity and the gains thereof. You're the founder of the Institute of Ideas, but aren't you just making a fetish of promoting freedom in all contexts? Am I interested in freedom too much? I mean, for me, freedom is the crucial way that we can realise ourselves as human beings. And with freedom comes the capacity to act as autonomous moral citizens. Without freedom, you are denied that right. Claire, thank you. Now, you both get the chance to take up with the other something that has been said that you may take particular umbrage with and debate. George, would you like to start? Yes. um, Claire, we talked about freedom. Um, Do you accept that some people's freedoms intrude upon other people's freedoms? Um, Rarely. So what about the situation, for instance, that I've witnessed in Romania where lead-smelting plants, because they're not properly regulated, are free to produce toxic fumes which are greatly shortening the lives of the people who live nearby? That's one kind of freedom intruding upon another, is it not? Well, I don't think it's freedom. I mean, I think there's problems of pollution. I think that no doubt the behaviour of a certain big industrial corporate organisations is not the way, is not necessarily beneficial to people. I'm talking about a clear case where regulation would be reduced in the name of the freedom that you're discussing, where, where industries are less regulated and so more able to produce pollutants like the lead smelters I saw in Romania. Do, do you not accept that those enhanced corporate freedoms to do as they wish or enhanced freedoms of the rich people who run those plants limit the freedoms of the people who live nearby. It's very interesting because you said those enhanced freedoms. Freedom is not about enhancing or not. Freedom, by the way, is a political freedom and political freedom is not divisible. I want people to be free and that, by the way, We're talking about being free to pollute in this case. You want people to be free to pollute. I, I want... Freedom. You're, you're, I appreciate that you are uh, keen to get me to say that I am on the bad side of the nasty polluters. No, no, what, no. What, no what, I, what I'm just I want to, to ask you, this then, what, I, what I'd like to then pursue back to you, as you were uh, good on asking that, is you see regulation then constantly top down regulation limits and and so on as the way to free society. Is that right? You think that will enhance freedom? That will allow people in Romania to have a freer society? I think that if the lead smelters that I saw in Romania were less free and more regulated, then the people living around them would be more free of the horrible diseases and the shortened life expectancy which they currently face. Now, I've answered your question in a very straightforward way. You still have not answered mine. They wouldn't be less free by the the smelters being regulated because freedom is not the same as in the way that you're describing. Freedom is a political rights question. Yes, and and at the moment, the political rights of the smelters is to be able to produce these fumes which are doing other people in. Yes, but but I'm actually talking about... I mean, if you want to talk about the political freedoms of the people in Romania, what you need is actually a sense of freedom in Romania to fight for your rights 
equally and you might then go out and fight the smelters as it happens. Uh, wait a minute, you, you're dodging the question again. OK, um, listen, the, the, you George, say... I'm answering it in a way that you don't find satisfactory. No, that well, is I not don't quite find it the same satisfactory as dodging. because you're not answering it. Um, and, and, in, and in this particular case, what people, the very people I met were doing, were demanding that the factory fine. should be restricted That's through fine. regulations imposed by the government. Were they wrong to do so? I would disagree with them as that being the priority. Let's bring it closer to home. Let's bring it closer to home. Because you will know that one of the things that's happened here is that whenever there is a discussion, for example, about um, climate change or the environment in this country, one of the things that is constantly urged is that people, for example, curtail their use of energy, change their behaviour, and that governments are asked to impose those changes because you can't trust the democracy to do it themselves. Now, do you think that what we should do is actually have... No regulations about energy use in this country. People should be able to be free to use whatever energy they want. You can try and persuade them, but we should get rid of all green regulations from this country because that would be free, wouldn't it? They would be free then to make decisions based on genuine political choices rather than uh, having it dictated by a government. You precisely illustrate my point. We would be free to limit other people's freedoms in that case because we would be free to reduce the quality of life of people who are much poorer than ourselves, who have much less agency than ourselves. No, I, I tell you what you need for cleaner technologies is you need to actually argue for greater investments in R&D actually uh, have a, an a vision that is not about limits and nature's revenge and worrying about cutting down on CO2 emissions, but actually a vibrant, healthy, future-orientated society that says the way forward is to develop lots of new technologies, is to industrialise everything. But let's look at what's going on in the UK for a moment, where we've got um, a situation right now where we're faced with a very clear choice. We either go down the fossil fuels route and replace current generating capacity with gas and coal, or we go down the low-carbon route and go to a mixture of renewables and nuclear technologies, such as integral fast, fast reactors and stuff. Route two is not going to happen unless... Route 1 is, is regulated away because at the moment the cheapest option is to go for gas and coal. For me, what we need is more energy. And what I think we should be arguing for is more energy to create the kind of world that means that we're not, um, for example, worried about running out of resources and so on. That would obviously require that you look at all sources of energy, that you will be excited about shale gas, that you will be enthusiastic about nuclear power as you latterly have been and uh, and I for a long time have been that you will not think of it in terms of CO2 emissions but think of it in terms of the world's energy needs. Now for me that's what matters, the world's energy needs Poorer countries by all means increase energy use but you know let's have that green transition and where's the harm? Where is the harm to helping poorer countries to produce extra energy through solar, through wind, through um, um, low carbon nuclear? We have to call time on this. The debate like the planet itself perhaps is in danger of overheating. George Monbiot, Claire Fox, thank you. Now it's over to you, the listener. Go to our site and tell us what you think. If you want to do as Emma suggests, join the debate by commenting on this podcast via our website, www.thefifthcolumn.co.uk.